Good morning, everyone. Well, uh, Lori has, for the second time in her working career, quit working here at Calvary for the second time. The third time, she's here for good. We'll, we'll give oh, you yeah. twice. Yeah. Um, so for the past two years or so, uh, she has been taking care of the maintenance, the cleaning, and making sure that the sanctuary and the bathrooms and the hallways are in perfect condition so that when you come in on a Sunday morning or you have Bible studies uh, throughout the week, that you have a pleasant environment to come to. And your work is not often applauded, but we're going to do that for you this morning. So thank you very much for your time, your service here. Uh, we're giving you a plant. All right. <laughs> and, a, and a card and a little gift inside the card. Awesome. Thank you very thank much, you. Lori. We appreciate your help. Thank you. Got through that without crying. <laughs> Good. Uh, and and uh, just so you know, we do have her um, replacement. The one stepping in is Roxanne, and I'm, I'm going to embarrass you right here and now. Roxanne, are you in here? Yes. Thank you very much. So Roxanne will be taking care of. <laughs> Roxanne, thank you. You just have to get used to it. I I don't follow a program, and it just comes out and. I really should think about it before pointing someone out like that. Uh, but thank you. Thank you both. Uh, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are right at the end of chapter 9, because the end of chapter 9 actually goes with chapter 10, and we're looking at chapter 9 and 10 this morning. And we're going to start by reciting our little phrase that we've had throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that wisdom is correctly applied biblical truth. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical truth. Now, the opposite of wisdom is actually foolishness. It is someone who is not applying God's word. What did I say? <sighs> right, a second, a second, one second, one second. Morning, everyone. Great to be here with you this morning. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are going to... Oh, wow, we started all at the very beginning. We are going to recite together that famous phrase that I have written, wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. It's written there. It's written here. It's written here. And it's written there, and I still messed it up. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. And foolishness is not someone who is being an idiot for the moment, but foolishness is lacking applying biblical truth. It's looking at biblical truth, denying it, rejecting it, and living by a completely different standard than God's knowledge and truth. So a fool is someone who in their heart sees the truth or may ignore the truth, but lives opposite of it, usually by their own fancy means and imagination, their own set of rules. And in chapter 10, 
like most of Ecclesiastes, but especially in chapter 10, we're going to see this really strong contrast between wisdom, someone who is correctly applying biblical knowledge and truth, and the fool, someone who rejects it and lives by his own standard. We're going to see that in a high contrast today, especially in this idea that just a little bit of foolishness can be incredibly devastating. Just a little bit of foolishness can be really devastating. I often tell the story because it is so spot on when it comes to foolishness, and just a little bit of foolishness really can uh, ruin the moment. Is uh, Early on in my childhood, I was struggling with uh, drugs and alcohol and addictions to that, and I remember one of the first times that my mom caught me with drugs, um, she said something about it, and I thought we were all over it. And, uh, you know, she scolded me. I learned my lesson. Uh, at least I pretended to learn my lesson. And then that evening, uh, my mom had made homemade brownies. Anybody remember the story? And uh, I thought, wow, this is, I mean, I just got in trouble, and now she's making brownies. This is it's kind of a, maybe i got to do this more often. And so she has the brownies and uh, serving them at, at, uh, after dinner, and doesn't give any to my sister, doesn't give any to my grandma. She doesn't take any. She says, Tim, this really is all for you. I'm like, wow, whole thing of brownies. She goes, just to let you know, though, before you take any, um, I put just a little dog poop in it. But it's just a little. Just a little. Enjoy. Just the thought of that. Just a little. Like, who in their right mind, and I didn't do it, but who in their right mind would actually eat one of those brownies? Knowing that there's just a little. And in the big mix of brownies, I mean, how much is it really going to be percentage-wise? Is 1% too much? Yeah. 1% is too much. What about a half a percent? Yep. A half a percent is way too much. What about like a tenth of 1%. Yeah. You know what? If the dog walked by it too closely, I don't want anything to do with it. But that principle applies to a little bit of foolishness can be devastating to someone's character, to a nation, to a family. Just a little bit of foolishness. So if a little bit of foolishness can be devastating, and we're going to see examples of that this morning, we should be on guard that we don't have any foolishness in our lives, which means we have to be really good and diligent at seeking wisdom and rightly and correctly applying biblical knowledge every day because we don't want poop in our lives. We don't want foolishness. We don't even want 1% or a tenth of a percent. We want holiness and righteousness and justice and goodness and mercy and tenderness and loving kindness and God's holiness in our lives. We don't want anything that can devastate our character and our life, our testimony, our words, our relationships, our work, our culture, and our family. We don't want anything to ruin or stain what God has made holy and pure. At the very end of chapter 9, verse 17 and 18, and chapter 10, verse 1, we see the very first example 
of this contrast between holiness and foolishness in play. Uh, Solomon says in verse 17 of chapter 9, the words of a wise, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. See, the influence of someone who has rightly and correctly applied biblical knowledge in their life can whisper it, and it brings life. Jesus says, my word is truth, and it brings life. It brings change for the good in relationships with him and relationships with, the, with, the, with each other, and it is God who affects that change through his word. But the fool, that king can shout all he wants, as loud as he wants, as many times as he wants. If it's foolishness, if it's contrary to God's standard, it doesn't matter how loud he shouts it, it will not bring life. It will not bring peace. It will not bring comfort, joy, or satisfaction. It brings, ultimately, challenges before God's sovereignty, and that leads to death. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wow. Wisdom is better than wars. I mean, it's always better, always better to talk through situations as opposed to immediately raise your fists, fists and go at it not just in personal relationships, but in nations. Dialogue, communicating what is true and right and calling each other to that holy standard is always better than resorting to fighting first and talking later. And God says, wisdom implanted in your heart will look like this. You will not wage war against each other, but you will establish peace through your words and conduct and how you treat one another it is far better than war because all you need is one little bit of foolish influence and it can be devastating. You have one person within your group who picks quarrels and fights, who always has slanderous jokes, who always makes fun of others, who always tears others down. That one person can have a devastating effect on the entire group. You can have a wonderful, good day going for you, however you want to define that. The day's been going perfect. The day is awesome. Everything is falling into place. You feel like, oh, this is the day i got to buy a lottery ticket because everything is going my way this day. And it takes just one person in a second to flip you off in a car and you have no idea what you did and you're like, what was that about? And it affects your entire day. The rest of the day can be perfect and joyous, but one little moment, someone influences you to the negative, to the bad. And yes, if you are interested, that did happen to us last week. I got no idea what happened. I was the one that received it, not doing it. I feel like I have to qualify everything. So chapter 10, verse 1 gives us another illustration of that a little bit of foolishness is devastating in which Solomon says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A little bit of spoil spoils the whole thing. A little bit of 
dog stuff ruins the whole thing. A little bit of foolishness can ruin a lot of wisdom, a lot of rightness, and a lot of godliness. And so we must be attentive to foolishness in our own hearts and in our own lives and our own thinking. We need to be attentive and Lord say, Lord, is there any, anything, the way I think, the way I act, the way I treat others, the way I think about others and talk about others or you that in any way is foolish, any way diminishes your righteousness and holiness, in any way cuts others down to make ourselves look better and feel better. Is there any of that in my life? Because if there is, it's foolishness. And a little bit of it can affect and influence your entire experience that day. He continues, Solomon does, in verse 2 all the way through verse 7 and gives us even more examples and dangers of foolishness in someone's life. He says in verse 2, a wise man heart inclines him to the right, to do the right thing, to be on track. So wisdom in a person's heart does help you live your life in a way that reflects righteousness and holiness, in a way that pleases God. Now that should not be rocket science moment of brilliance, that if I live according to God's word, things go well with me and God. That should not be a surprise, but it's absolutely true and it's fundamental to our Christian living that as I honor God, as I read his word and I internalize it and I meditate upon it and I believe it and I follow it, my path, the way that I walk, my life, doesn't become super easy, but it becomes, what's the word I'm looking for? It becomes, it becomes right just becomes right. No matter the events or the circumstances, as we saw last week, which we cannot control, it doesn't matter. But if I do this, if I live wisdom, then my path is straight, it's narrow, and it's walking with God. But the fool, the fool's heart is inclined to go left. Now, before you think it, Solomon is not at all talking about right and left the way we consider right and left with politics, okay? So before your mind even goes there, and maybe your mind wasn't going there, but now I gave it to you. That's not what he's talking about. He had no clue and no interest in American politics between the right and to the left. But in Scripture, right often indicates the safe path before God. Going to the left is a crooked path before God. That's all that Solomon is expressing in here. And he continues in verse 3 and says the same type of illustration. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never had anyone come up to me and say, man, I'm a fool. All right? But there has been plenty of people that I've been able to watch and listen to that demonstrate to the world around them that they are foolish. So we see and recognize the fool speaking when we see and recognize that their life is not correctly applying biblical knowledge. 
When that life is not applying biblical knowledge in the right way, it is foolishness. And they don't have to tell you that you're a fool or they're a fool. You just have to look at how they're acting, how they're treating others, how they respond to God's word. And you immediately see foolishness. Foolishness. He goes on in verse 4, another contrast here. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Proverbs tells us that a gentle answer does what? Turns away wrath. This did not happen to me, but it happened to another pastor friend of mine. Of course, it has to deal with driving. Uh, he mistakenly pulled out in front of someone without honestly knowing that that person was going down the street, and this person slammed on its brakes and honked its horn, flashed its light, and was just aggravated. They got to a stoplight, and what happens then? The guy got out of the car, went over to my friend's car, and started yelling at him. My friend got out and said, I am so sorry. I was completely wrong. I wasn't paying attention. Thank you for honking your horn so that I would notice it. Thank you for flashing your light so that I would notice it. Thank you for not hitting me. You protected both of us today from an accident. Thank you. And he says immediately, the guy said, yeah, no problem and got back to his car. He might have said something else, but the way he tells the story, it was like, all right, man, no, no problem. Don't worry. Yeah, that's all right. But you can diffuse angry situations and tense situations. You can diffuse it by beating the other guy, okay? Or you can diffuse it by using wisdom, words, and calmness. And so I think what uh, Solomon is getting to here in verse 4 is that there are often times you're going to have a boss or a ruler who is a jerk to you. Your first response should not, I'm out of here. You know, I, I'm going to move to a new country or whatever it might be. But maybe it's best incumbent upon you to firstly live in wisdom with that person, with that spouse, with that boss, with that teacher, with that official. Maybe your first response shouldn't be, let's attack. But maybe your first response should be, let me live in wisdom in this situation. And then he continues in verse 5, 6, and 7 to give us this last kind of contrast here in this section. It says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. So here's he's describing, Solomon is describing an evil. Remember, Solomon is already talking from the context of what it is like to live without God. What is it like to have a country without God, a culture without God, a family without God, a life without God? So he's starting with the premise of you don't have any clue about God or wisdom. And he says, so this is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. So he's looking at the top down, saying this is what I've seen and it's evil, it's wrong, it's wicked. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low places. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground, 
like slaves. So Solomon gives us two examples of evil that he's seen, folly or foolishness that he's seen. He says the first example is uh, people set in high places that the rich sit in low places and that the princes are walking while the slaves are riding. And your first instinct regarding those verses is absolutely correct. It is upside down and reverse of the way it should be. When you have a ruler, and he's talking about in verse 4, is someone who is foolish, someone who is angry, someone who does something against you, their whole experience that they bring to the table is topsy-turvy, upside down, not the way it should be. Everything they do, everything that they promote, they promote the wrong over the right. And all of a sudden, in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles give absolute clarity to what Solomon said almost 1,400 years before. Don't be surprised when the world calls evil good. And they call good evil. Can you think of any examples you might see today? <laughs> we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time. But Solomon, 1,500 years ago, almost well, 3,500 years from today, said there's foolishness in the heart of the leaders when everything that they do and promote is topsy-turvy, reverse, upside down, not the way it should be. And we're living in that today. It should comfort you, though. I'm going to give you some comfort here. Solomon saw this and was struggling with it as king of Israel centuries ago in a land halfway around the world. It is not a brand new phenomenon that we have leaders in our world promoting evil over good and suppressing good. It's not brand new. We're not the first culture to experience it. We're not the first nation to experience it. I don't know if that brings you comfort or brings you more heartache, but it can bring both. It can bring comfort that we're not the first to experience it. God has something to say about it. It also should bring us that sense of discomfort. Lord, when are you going to come back? Because your people have been living in cultures like this since the beginning of time. Just come back quickly. Make it all right. Make it all new. Make it all holy and just. Remove foolishness from the face of this earth and let your righteousness reign supreme. Comforting, everyone goes through it. Distressing, because the ultimate answer is, Lord, you got to come, and you got to come quickly and fix this. We can't. And he doesn't ask us to fix it. He asks us to live humbly in the situation and events that we face with honesty and integrity, living in wisdom. He goes on in verse 8 through verse 11 to talk about more examples of foolishness and not considering things ahead of time. And the way he describes this is this way in verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through the wall. So this is kind of giving you an idea of someone who is not concerned about the consequences of their actions, not thinking through the decisions that they're making. They just dig a pit, 
And if all you're doing is digging a pit, no reason, no purpose, but you're just going at it, and you're going at it with lots of gusto, and all of a sudden, you stop, and you don't do anything about it, and that's your entire existence. I'm digging a pit. You're going to fall in it. Someone else is going to fall in it. It's not wise preparation. Just the same as, hey, you're knocking down bricks and walls and turning over stones, not caring what happens. There may be a danger in that. And he talks about more dangers in verse 9. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. There is this sense of, okay, we shouldn't touch stones and wood. That's not what he's talking about. We shouldn't be productive or masons or woodworkers. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about doing life's activities without any consideration or thought about what's going on. I'm just living it. I'm just doing it. No understanding. No planning. No foresight. No measuring that against God's will in your life. It says if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. In a very small, subtle, insignificant way, I remember early on in life, my mom teaching me another very valuable lesson. Uh, she was teaching me to cook, and I was cutting up vegetables, and I was having a hard time with the knife cutting the vegetables, and it kept slipping, and it just didn't feel right, and uh, my mom said, well, um, if you're scared of cutting yourself, why don't you sharpen the knife? And I'm like, I'm a little kid, I'm like, okay, I, a sharp knife cuts better. Why would I want it to cut me better if I'm having a hard time cutting these vegetables? And the reality is a sharp knife is a safer knife than one that is dull because it's less effort to go through the vegetables or whatever you're cutting. So it is always a safe thing. So if you ever watch chefs on TV or you've ever been trained as a chef, you're always sharpening your knife. Why? Because a sharp knife is safe. When your instrument is blunt, there's more pressure involved, there's more chance that you might slip and really do incredible damage. And so wisdom looks at that from God's perspective of correctly applying biblical knowledge and saying, I have to have thought that goes into my actions. I have to think through my actions. I can't just do them and expect everything to turn out right God asks us to think rightly. In fact, the word meditate occurs more often in the Old Testament than pray. Meditate. Think through what God has given us and how it applies to my life. Just like someone who is cutting logs, I better make sure my equipment is right. Someone who is chiseling stones, I better make sure my equipment is right. Someone who's cutting vegetables, better make sure my knife is sharp. There's basic biblical principles that I have to think through how I live. I can't just go for it. And that is a real common theme in our lives today, this idea of YOLO. Everybody know what that little YOLO means? You, you only live once? Having the idea behind it is just, just go for it. Just do it. Well, there should be some thought behind how I live, how I act what relationships I have, how I start a relationship, how I end a relationship. There should be guidelines that I follow, not just the impulse of, I want to do it, so I do it. If we had more of a measured thoughtfulness about how we live our lives in our culture and society, I think we'd be better off. I think we would have some good improvements in our culture. 
And then he turns into verse 11, kind of takes us home even further. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no profit to the charmer. Well, that's pretty obvious. If my whole job is to charm the snake so that when you handle the snake, it doesn't bite you, if it bites you, I have failed. I make no profit. I don't have any advantage. I, I'm not a good snake charmer. So you can't just simply say, hey, I'm going to do this and that and never accomplish it. Kind of goes back to what Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. See, even something as simple as, even though it's not simple, charming a snake has biblical connection to it. You do it right, you do it well, and you do it honestly. You lived honest before God. Don't try to fool, don't try to run yourself around it, don't try to fake yourself around it, because in the end, someone may get dangerously hurt. He continues in verse 12 through 15 in this section, saying, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consumes him. It's always better to be around someone who gives meditative, thoughtful, biblical knowledge and expression than a fool who opens its mouth and just rambles insistently. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. The fool who is consumed by their, generally, their own self-interest, generally consumed by their own passions, their own pride, their own, it's all about me. Everything that proceeds from their mouth, all of their actions lead to destruction. Never builds you up, never encourages you, tears you down, and as Solomon says, their talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, verse 14, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. In the end, Solomon says, the fool rambles and rambles and rambles, doesn't have any clue what he's talking about. He can't predict what will happen, what will not happen. In fact, in the end, he has no clue how to get home. He talks a big talk. He has lots of words. He has lots of convincing. He shouts from the rooftops. Everyone is listening, but he produces nothing because his words don't bring life. His words don't bring comfort. His words don't bring a relationship with God to its fullness. It demonstrates selfishness, lack of self-control, and in the end, he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. I, uh, I had many experiences in life in teaching martial arts, and uh, I remember vividly most of the first classes I had with first-time students. They were like me when I was a first-time student. They'd watched a lot of Bruce Lee movies, and they thought they knew everything about uh, karate and martial arts because I had watched all the Bruce Lee movies multiple times. And that first student, that very first class, and I think you've experienced this in school or if you uh, at all have any leadership roles within your jobs, you have seen that person who is the private. 
who has a little bit of experience under their bolt, uh, belt. Uh, they've taken one or two classes. They have a little bit of knowledge. And all of a sudden, they think they know it all. And these first-year students, um, or, or first-time students, uh, there, there was a little bit of, um, not resentment, but there was a little bit of fun we'd used to have with them. Uh, because we would put them up against students who were far superior to them. But we would pretend that they were on the same level. And they would spar, and they would, uh, you know, do their MMA stuff on the mats. And it was always shocking to see these first-year students, um, well, I, I'll put it gently, be put in their place. And immediately their arrogance and their self-confidence and their, hey, we're the best things in sliced bread approach to life immediately was quenched and stopped and humbled. Solomon is talking about someone who is that first-year student, that first-time person, that person who has a little bit under their belt and basically says, Everything they try to accomplish with you is weariness and it is draining and they have no clue what they're talking about, but they have this new position and it is devastating to everyone around them. When they have a little bit of control or power or interest, it drains you. Verse 16 all the way through the end of the chapter, we have the last section. This idea, remember, a little, a little foolishness can be devastating. A little foolishness can be devastating. It says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. When you have a king as a child, what eight-year-old should be in charge of anything? Well, for that much, what 18-year-old should be in charge of anything? I know plenty of 28-year-olds that shouldn't be in charge of anything. Okay, let's just be honest. I know a lot of people who shouldn't be in charge of anything, regardless of their age. But Solomon is not just simply talking about an age of a child. He's talking about someone with inexperience who is weighing over their heads, should not be in charge of anything. Because in the end, what happens is the princes feast in the morning. Now, there's nothing wrong with princes feasting, but it's the time of day. What are they supposed to be doing in the morning? I'd say working, producing, doing stuff. But in the fool's mind, everything is just a joyous party. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you have stuff to do. They just do whatever they want to, anytime they want to. It says, happy are you, though, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So the one who goes and just lives their life foolishly, the whole land suffers from it. But the one who does it rightly, who has maturity in their leadership and knows exactly when I'm supposed to have fun and when I'm supposed to work. There's a huge difference. The land, the family, the company, the culture, the society, the nation is blessed when they apply wisdom to these situations. Through sloth, verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in. Through idleness, the house leaks Bread is made for laughter, wine for gladness of life, money answers everything. That everything is somehow directed to yourself, and a life of laziness produces what? A life of laziness produces destruction, decay. 
And then in the end, verse 20. Because if you've been listening to verses 1 through 19 so far, you are probably in your mind going, ah, this person is just like this. This person is just like this. This person may be 80 years old, but still acts like a child and is still foolish, and I bet he can't find his way home. I bet everyone is thinking about who this is. And it may be someone different in everybody's life, but we're all thinking it. And so I think Solomon rightly puts in verse 20 because he knows how humans think. He says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. So don't curse the person in power. Don't curse the person who has privileged. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter, or Siri and Google will record it. And the NSA will listen to it. And it will come to haunt you, and you will be canceled in 20 years for something you said at the dinner table that was recorded by your phone 20 years previously. I don't think he's talking about Twitter. I don't think he's talking about uh, anything like that. But I think he's talking about the real, the real ramifications that those in leadership over us we need to be mindful of how God tells us to treat them. And he tells us to treat those in leadership over us with respect and honor, praying for them, praying for them, praying for them, asking God to intervene and stop their foolishness and asking God to increase their righteousness, asking God to bring them into a relationship with him and asking God for the wisdom and the strength and courage to do what is right. If we prayed more for our leaders in our nation than we did complaining about them, well, that's a good lesson, isn't it, right there? How much more time do we spend complaining about the people in authority over us compared to the amount of time we pray for them? That's where we stop this morning and pray. Lord, wow, you took us on a whirlwind of a lot of things in this text this morning. The devastating nature of foolishness is right before us, Father. Help us to be a people who don't complain and whine and argue and vent about the authority over us, but that we pray for them. And in praying for them, Father, we're not acknowledging what they're doing, but we're beseeching you to make life valuable again in the eyes of our nation, to make marriage sacred again in our nation, to make your word important in this nation, Lead and guide our president, our Congress, our governor, our Senate, our judges. Lead and guide them to do what is right before your eyes. Give them wisdom, Father. Let them correctly apply knowledge found in Scripture. Father, turn their hearts from evil to good. And help us, Father, to stop the arguing, complaining, inventing, and to pray first, to pray for their holiness, to pray for their relationship with you, and to call them in truth and in love 
to follow you above all things. In your son's name, all of God's people said, amen.